In our journey through Matthew 13, we've been jumping around the parable, the jumping around the chapter a little bit. So let's take a moment to get our bearings before we really dive into what these parables have to speak to us. In verse 36, Jesus has left the crowds and has begun having a private conversation with his disciples. And he just finished explaining the parable of the weeds. And his disciples might have been wondering, after hearing these many parables, well, if the kingdom is not large in size, at least at its start, as we learned from the mustard seed, and that... Um, and that the weeds have covered the harvest that we saw in the parable of the weeds, how valuable can this kingdom be? Is it worth laboring for, one of his disciples might have pondered. And Jesus clearly answers that his kingdom is absolutely worth it. It's worth absolutely everything we have to enter into this kingdom. For some, it may cost everything. But Jesus said in Mark 10 that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's unpack what I mean by all of this, uh, beginning with our first parable in verse 44. Fortunately for us, it's only one verse, so I can get through these today. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now the obvious question emerges, why on earth would anyone bury their valuables in a field? This analogy doesn't make sense to the modern hearer, but we need to remember we're talking about a parable from the first century. You know, banks didn't exist. Bank vaults, safety deposit boxes, that didn't exist 2,000 years ago, certainly not in in Israel. Um, And whatever bankers that they had were mostly money changers or lenders, not a place where you would take your stuff to to keep it safe. They didn't have what we have today. So if you had anything of serious value that you wanted to keep safe, you had to go out in the darkness cover of night and take whatever you were keep trying to hide and put it in a jar or in a box and then hide it in the ground, cover it up the best that you can, and most importantly, remember where you put it. <laughs> that can be a problem sometimes. <laughs> Because regretfully, not all the treasure in that region was accounted for. Um, If a man died before telling his loved ones where the stuff was, it was lost to the ages. Furthermore, if the people had gone into captivity as Israel had, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon, they didn't come back for a generation, many of them, if at all. And so much of their treasures were lost to the ages. So in our modern era, this idea of finding hidden treasure kind of sounds like a fairy tale. But to the first century Jew, it was conceivable, albeit rare, to uncover such a thing. So however this person discovers this treasure, maybe he sees it protruding up by accident, or maybe 
He's a worker plowing this land and upheaves it by accident. However he discovers it, he finds it, immediately recognizes its immense worth, and sells everything he has so he could become the rightful owner of the treasure and the the land that it was on and possess this, this great valuable treasure. Now that's not exactly the most honest thing to do, is it? You know, to to hide treasure from the rightful owner and then trick them into a one-sided deal. That's that's not the most Christian thing we can do. I think we can all agree to that. You know, it's not totally honest and forthcoming. But this is why I took a whole week, a couple of weeks ago, you could find a recording online to explain the purpose of parables like this in the first place. Um, The main point of this narrative is not to discuss Christian ethics deciphering right from wrong, but to illustrate one simple main point that the kingdom of God is so valuable that upon discovering what it is, it's worth losing everything else you have to obtain it. But some people might even misread that point and say, wait a minute, that teaches works. That teaches I must do something to gain the kingdom of God. Being a Christian isn't supposed to cost me anything, is it? Now that's a thought. That's not it at all, actually. None of that is true. You see, it's, it's, not, about this, it's not about works. This doesn't teach, oh, I have to work really hard to earn the kingdom of heaven. It's about counting the cost. It's about being willing to lay down everything you have for the sake of the gospel. As Jesus said in our first reading, nobody's going to build a tower without first making sure they have the funds to complete the whole project, lest they become a laughingstock. And so, you know, anyone who desires to become a Christian ought to esteem Jesus of greater value than all earthly riches. Because... This way, if you ever are forced to choose between the two, you'll know in advance what your answer will be. And that's not a false dichotomy for many people, unfortunately. We must remember 11 out of the 12 disciples died a martyr's death. And the odd man out was boiled in hot oil and left on a slave labor camp. So hardly a comfortable life that he had to live for the sake of the gospel. And many of those men throughout the ages are given a chance to recant their beliefs. But they didn't because they counted the cost. And the same is true today. This isn't a first century problem. Um, It's likely that many of our brothers and sisters coming to faith in North Korea, Iran, China will end up giving their lives for what they believe and simply for believing what we so freely do here every Sunday. Now, I pray that we never have to make that choice under those circumstances, but we all ought to decide today, well, what would we do if we had to? As Jesus calls each of us to make a total commitment to him, whether or not we're under threat of persecution. To be able to say, as the the hymn writer said, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. 
having the kind of faith that led Franny Crosby, for instance, to say, take this world, but give me Jesus. That's what we're called to have. In fact, that's why throughout church history, once someone confessed Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah, they would be baptized by full immersion into the water as that communicates that type of commitment. Because really, baptism understood that way represents two of our most emotional Christian services wrapped into one. Because it's both a funeral and a dedication. Read Romans chapter 6. It it describes us identifying with the death of Christ, being buried with him in those waters, that we're putting our old man of sin to death, burying him in the water, identifying with the death of Christ, but we come out of that water in the same way representing we're identifying with Jesus' resurrection and we're identifying with the newness of life that he has given us. Picturing physically what had already happened to us spiritually. It's been described as the outward sign of the inward change that had already taken place. But here's our problem. We often don't view our lives as dead to sin and alive to Christ. But that old man we lay of sin, we live very much allowing it to live alive in our lives, if you will. And we, rather than viewing Jesus as the one who has made us a new creation, we view Jesus as an addition to our lives, rather than the one who came to change our lives from the inside out. (laughs) We even use language such as inviting Jesus into our lives. I'm sure you guys have heard that before. And that, that to me just sounds too much like I'm inviting someone over to a dinner party for a couple of hours and then he leaves. And then as soon as he's out the door, it's like, whew, glad he's gone. Now we can start, now we can start relaxing again. That's what it sounds like when we use that language. And I don't mean to bark on people who do use that language, but I want, but the scriptures call us to a higher dedication than that. Rather than inviting him over for a dinner party, what we're called to do is give him the keys. We're called to give him the keys and the deed and say, this place is yours now, speaking of our own lives. Selling all that you have as is pictured in this this passage. And even in our beloved hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, it uses this kind of language. You ever notice that? I mean... Read some of those verses in there. Take my moments and my days, signifying, Lord, take my time and use it for your glory. Take my hands and my feet, meaning my actions, and use them for your glory. My silver and gold, my material possessions. My intellect and will, my immaterial possessions, an inward self, and reckon it all surrendered. To our, to our Savior Jesus, so that Jesus would be glorified in every area of our lives, not just for an hour a week on Sunday morning. <laughs> just think about it, there's no such thing as something that is half surrendered. The imagery doesn't make sense. You're, if an army half surrenders, they're still fighting. I mean, think about it. Imagine laying half an animal down to sacrifice. 
on an altar. Doesn't work like that. It's already sacrificed or it's already been sac- it's already been sacrificed somewhere else or you're laying it down on this altar. There's no in between. Rather, we're called as Romans 12:1 says to to consider ourselves living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, that that is our spiritual act of worship. That is our reasonable service in light of what Christ has done for us and the new creation he has bought us to be on the cross. As we move forward, though, this morning, verse 45 is another parable with a very similar a theme and a very similar message, but very important nuances. We pick that up in verse 45 that says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sounds very similar to that first parable. A merchant like this would be much like a modern wholesaler. Someone who buys things at one price and resells it at a better price, you know, to make some profit. And the picture here is simple. As they're searching for something of value, they're looking through all of these valuable items, they discover this pearl of great value. And they recognize that this pearl is worth so much, they sell everything else that they've accumulated, all the other parts of their business, because they just want this new thing that they have discovered so badly that they reckon it's worth losing everything that they had up to this point to obtain this one pearl, which symbolizes the kingdom of heaven. This, This merchant perfectly describes someone who is searching for something of value in this world. And that describes a lot of people today, doesn't it? People searching in this culture, in our society, in this social media-driven culture for something of value and coming up empty so far. So too, so many people are looking to satisfy the, the deep needs of their soul, to find their identity. And they try to find value, meaning, purpose, and identity in their careers, in their relationships, in their accomplishments in their social media personas. And I hope you guys all know a lot of those people on social media, that's just a persona, right? A a lot of people are coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, it's all just an act. My life isn't like that. You know, that's my persona. That's how I portray myself online. That's not how I really am. And people are trying to find their satisfaction by acting like that, but are depressed when they discover those Those things do not satisfy the deep longings of the soul, whatever of those things we just listed are. But the unique challenge for this coming generation especially is that they're being taught that if you don't like your identity, you can change it. You can just identify as something you're not and suddenly you are. And we're going to, and the rest of society affirms that. And that's, that, that creates all kinds of problems. Maybe you're the wrong gender, and that's why, you're, why you aren't happy in being fulfilled. And many voices are joining alongside those people, but they're ignoring the more and more voices that are starting to be raised up, saying, no, that, that doesn't satisfy either. I tried it, it doesn't work. You won't hear that in today's media, but there's a growing number of people saying, no, that was a mistake. 
But what this generation needs more than anything else is to conclude their search for meaning and in the only worldview that gives meaningful answers to life's toughest and most important questions, the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Those are the four big questions. Where Origin, where did I come from? Meaning, what is my purpose? Morality, how do I tell what's right from wrong? And destiny, where are we going? And the only coherent, consistent, and meaningful answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That where your search for self-worth, your identity, your value, your purpose is laid out in one verse in the Bible. One that we've taught so many people from the youngest of children, John 3.16. For God so loved the world... And that's you guys, the whole world, in all of our struggles, in all of our difficulties, that he gave his one and only son, the greatest possible loss and sacrifice and act of love so that whoever would believe in him, the widest possible audience, would not perish the worst possible loss, but have everlasting life the greatest possible gain. That is great news for all who are searching for this meaning. That the meaning in life isn't found in things or a lack of things. It's found in a person. You know, I, I, I've, throughout my entire conscience life, I've been a Christian. I can't remember a time where I wouldn't have told you I was a Christian if asked. But, but there came a point in my early adulthood where my faith really became my own. Where it wasn't just the faith that I had been raised in or the faith that I had gotten from my parents, but it was truly my own. And, at, and when, upon discovering that, nothing compared to the joy I had in personally rediscovering these truths. I have this, such a clear memory early in my walk with Christ of just remembering worshiping, alongside some friends of mine with a, at a worship service, hands lifted in the air, singing at the top of our lungs with gratitude, the joy that we had for what Christ has done for us. And as I'm lost in the emotional high of the moment, this rogue thought entered my mind, and it just broke my heart. I started thinking about all of my friends who didn't know Jesus, all of my friends and family members that don't have this joy, that don't have this anchor for our hope, this anchor for your identity. And I'm thinking of all these people that are bouncing around from relationship to relationship, trying to find meaning in things that aren't meant to fill those voids. And it, it just broke my heart. Because it, it crossed my mind, if they could just taste one spiritual morsel of what I was experiencing in that moment, it would change their lives forever. They'd never be the same. Not because I discovered something so great, but because Jesus is that worth it. He solves those questions that are that deep to our souls. And guys, maybe as I'm talking this morning, maybe that's you. Or maybe that's a loved one of yours, a friend of yours, somebody you know. That searching throughout the world for purpose and it feels like searching for a needle in a haystack. 
Only to come out, you're looking in the wrong haystack. That's why you can't find it, because the answers aren't found in the places you've been looking. And if that is you, my, my encouragement is, as, as the old hymn goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. So, as we consider all that these two parables teach us, yes, there is a cost to following Jesus. We, we ought to be willing to lay down our lives on that altar metaphorically in, in this art of that lost word in Christian culture, repentance. And that word that simply means to change your mind, that you were going this way, and now I'm going this way. I was living for myself. I was living for my passions. I was living for the world. But as imperfectly as I'm going to do it, I'm not changing my directory. I'm going towards the things of God. I don't want to live for the things that, that displease him. I want to live for the things that please him now. And with that cost of repentance and laying down my life, I just want to give that final assurance. It is absolutely Worth it. No worldview, philosophy, religion, or lifestyle comes close to what Jesus offers you. Nor do they coherently answer those big four questions we were talking about before. But another final thought, and I mean it this time. Perhaps the most astounding part of these parables is that there is a beautiful parallel on God's side as well that ties all of this together, that makes whatever sacrifice we make on our side seem insignificant by comparison. And to start, off, and to start that off, I mean by saying we are certainly no treasure or pearl of great price unto ourselves. There is nothing that God would desire in us according to our flesh and our good works. The prophet Isaiah even said that our own righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, our, our righteousness and spiritual standpoint of ourselves is pitiful, really. Yet, Jesus gave all that he had to redeem you. He gave all that he had to purchase you as that man gave all he had to purchase the field. <laughs> Romans 5, 6 says this, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's you and me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got our act together. Not once we started walking the path and get ourselves right. Not when we started getting more good deeds than bad deeds. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Demonstrating his love on the cross. And to put this in perspective, Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what was that joy? What was the joy that allowed Jesus to endure the cross? 
to go through that shame, that humiliation, unfathomable, unimaginable pain of crucifixion. And he says that for the joy set before him, he was able to endure it. What was that joy? That's the great news. It was you. It was the joy of redeeming you to the glory of the Father that allowed him to endure the cross, knowing that he was redeeming you for his glory. That was what gave our Savior joy in the midst of all of that agony. So just as Jesus ought to be the pearl of great price to us, in the parable of the weeds, we are pictured as the precious wheat. Some of you remember from two weeks ago or so that we are pictured as that precious wheat at the harvest that was too precious to let a single grain go to waste. That's how we are described as our identity in Christ. Not because we earned it. Not because there's anything glorious or spiritually attractive to us sinners like us. But because of God's unearned, immeasurable, glorious grace that these things are true. So in conclusion, guys, place your trust in Jesus today. Wherever you've come from, whatever you've done, whether you're in here for the first time or whether you've been coming here for, coming here for decades, place your complete trust in him today. As Jesus has given all to redeem us, we should lay down all on the altar to follow him as well. And I promise you, it's worth it. Thanks be to God.